continuing our series, uh, Letters from Patmos. And this is where we're in the book of Revelation. We're looking at the first three chapters of Revelation and the letters that Jesus gave to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And if you weren't here last week or if you've missed the messages, you can go out to myfamchurch.com and watch them. You can watch them on the Fam Church app. But I got to tell you, if you weren't here last week, whatever you were doing wasn't as good as the service that we had last week. Okay? Um... <laughs> um because we talked about sex, and everybody likes to talk about sex. Well, a lot of people do. Not everybody. All right. But anyways, that's what we talked about last week. Uh, we were in the church at Pergamum, and the problem that they had was that they were some sexual immoral, immorality had gotten into the church. And what we looked at was God had set up sex a certain way. It set it up to happen between a godly man and a godly woman inside marriage. And that's what we looked at last week. And like I said, if you missed it, you can uh, head out to myfamchurch.com and watch it. Uh, so let's move on to this week. We're moving into church number four, which is the church in Thyatira, which by the way, um, after this Sunday, we're going to have a couple of week break from this message series. Uh, coming up here uh, next Sunday and the following Sunday is our missions emphasis week. We're going to be focusing on missions. And so we have two missionary speakers that are going to be here for the next two Sundays that are going to challenge us to go missionary, to go and do missions. They're going to challenge us to give to missions and they're going to challenge us to pray for missions. And so that's culminating in that banquet that Maurice talked about, uh, free food, free Indian food. And uh, that's starting all next week. So for the next, and then on Wednesday night, we're going to have the Teen Challenge program, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. We're going to have the Girls Teen Challenge program from here in Lakeland. If you don't know what that is, it's a drug rehab program uh, that's, uh, that's, that's Christian-based. And they're going to be here telling stories, giving their testimonies, uh, that sort of thing. And so you don't want to miss that. But uh, okay, so here we are in Thyatira. And, and Thyatira was the least influential of all the cities that are in these seven letters, okay? There, there was the least influential. It was a working class city. It was a lot like Mulberry right here. It's just working class people, your normal, average, everyday sort of person. And, and most of their industry there was driven by manufacturing. Okay, they manufactured all kinds of things there. And, uh, and, and because of the manufacturing influence, they had something that were called trade guilds that were in the city. And uh, what a trade guild was, is it, was, it's a, uh, it, it functions as three parts, okay? The first part was it kind of functioned like a union, okay? And, and then the second part was it functioned like a cartel. And then the third function of it, it was, um, I forgot what it was, uh, secret society, okay? And so this was the picture of these trade guilds in Thyatira. It was a combination of the teacher's union, okay, the mafia, and the Illuminati. You put all three of those together, and that's what you get as far as these trade unions go, these, these trade guilds. And, and so those were going on in the, that, in the city of Thyatira, but these guilds, they just didn't control the workers and the people who did jobs. They also controlled the politics in the area. And so if you were in government, you had to be involved in these trade guilds. It also controlled the the, the, the uh the connections, the relationships among people, the, the things that you did outside of your work. your work, And so they had uh, all sorts of meetings and gatherings, and they also were part of worship. They had worship that was contained within their, their structure, okay? And so, uh, so if you were a part of a guild, 
If you wanted to make a living, you had to be a part of a guild. And if you were a part of a guild, you had to be involved in all of those aspects. There was the social aspect, the religious aspect, and then the political aspect of it, okay? And uh, the three most common industries in Thyatira were the butchers, the bakers, and the candlestick makers, all right? You guys just all straight-faced me there. Oh, unbelievable. All right. No, you guys remember that from when you were a kid? Come on, man. You guys are too serious already. Um, but no, the, the three major trades, the three major manufacturing things that happened in this city was the shoemakers, the manufacturers of dyed cloth, and bronze workers. Okay? And uh, these guilds, controlled these workers. And these guilds had their own gods and goddesses, and they frequently offered feasts and worship services and honors of those gods, and participation in these worship services were mandatory. And so in this city, for a follower of Jesus to do business in Thyatira, they were under tremendous pressure to be a part of one of these guilds, okay? They were under tremendous pressure to be involved in this, and refusal to get involved in any of these guilds meant that you maybe didn't get a job, you didn't have political influence, you didn't have social connections, you didn't have opportunities for business. And so, and so that's how important these guilds were to the people who were trying to make a living in the city of Thyatira. And so with that, we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 18 through 29. Um, some of you might be get tired of me saying this, but this will be the, um, the last week for a while that I'll say this. So uh, if you're familiar with Revelation, where Revelation is at, please feel free to turn there. Uh, for anyone who's new to the church, the Bible, um, you can, uh, and you're not sure where Revelation is at, it's the last book in the New Testament at the very end of the Bible. Uh, so just go to the end and start paging backwards. You should run into it. And uh, so we're going to read, as I said, verses uh, 18 through 29 in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. And this is what it says. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and persever perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she is misleading my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immoral immor immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Now, some of you just heard that and went, oh my gosh, he's so violent. What he, means by, what he means by children there is he's not talking about their like literal children. He's talking about those who follow this prophet, okay? Not, he's not killing children. He's just killing, he's talking about the people that follow this prophet. And then all the church will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say this to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold, to, hold you to what uh, you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. And so, uh, so that's uh, 18 through 29. And I'm not going to touch on the sexual immorality thing again. We talked about that last week. We're going to move on from that. And so what I want to drill down on here is this prophet and the, the, uh, the idolatry that was being introduced into the church here in this text. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to see how this applies to us living in Florida 2,000 years later because it's a completely different scenario. It's a completely different picture. And if our eyes aren't open to see what's going on, we're going to kind of miss this thing because we're going to get focused on idols and that sort of thing when we read this. And, and so Jesus, to open up this letter to the church in Thyatira, he, uh, he, he tells them uh, who he is. Remember, in each one of these letters, he reveals a character trait about himself. Okay, And the character trait that Jesus is revealing about himself in this one is that he's the passionate one. He's got fire in his eyes. He's got a sword in his hand. He's got all of this passion flowing through his body. And so he is saying to the church, look, you guys are in a place where you don't have any passion. You are in a place where you guys are not excited, where you're not fired up about me. And I am coming to meet you. And I am coming to show myself to you as the passionate one in hopes of you getting your passion back to overcome what's been going on in your church because what's been going on in your church has killed your passion for me. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He introduces himself and he says, look, you guys are doing some good things here. You guys are doing some kingdom stuff here. You're advancing the gospel through your church. But there's things that I have against you. There's things that I have against the things that you're doing. And so Jesus, I mean, he goes at he goes at it. He goes in on them. He hits them hard. And what Jesus does is he starts to air out their dirty laundry, and he starts by comparing this church to someone named Jezebel. Now, in this day and age, Jezebel doesn't mean much. If you were to say that to somebody, they'd say, what are you talking about? But see, back in the day, and I'm not sure how long ago the day was. I just know that it was a while ago. When you would use the word Jezebel to talk about somebody, especially a woman, it was an insult, okay? It was used as an insult. It was used to describe a woman who would use up men, burn through them, kick them out, throw them out, and be done with them. It was, it was a woman who used uh, everything that she had within her power to use and abuse men to gain power, to gain authority, to gain those sorts of things. And, uh, and, uh, and this is not, Jezebel was a woman in the Old Testament. And so this is not exactly a picture of who she was, but that's what her name came to mean. And so let me tell you who Jezebel was, because that'll help us to get more at what Jesus was trying to say to the church here. And to find Jezebel, you got to turn to the book of 1 Kings, and, uh, and uh, that's where we meet her. She was, uh, she was the daughter of of the uh, king of Sidon. And Sidon was the uh, nation just north of Israel back then, okay? And so, so he was, a, that was the daughter of the king. And, and how they did peace treaties back then was kind of like this. It was like, man, you're having problems with this other country. Hey, I know a way to solve the problem. Why doesn't your son marry my daughter? And that'll take care of all the problems, okay? That was how they did it. I mean, it'd be like us saying, hey, why don't, you know, we're having all these problems with ISIS. Why don't we why don't we get Obama's daughter? Why don't we get Donald Trump's daughter? Have them marry the ruler of ISIS, and that'll take care of all of our problems. You know, that's kind of that's how they went about it. But, you know, it really doesn't work. You can't, you can't do that. It's not going to solve the problem. If you've got issues and conflicts, it's going to make the problem worse. However, they still got married. And uh, in the society in which Jezebel lived, uh, they worshipped a god called Baal. Okay, and uh, in Baal worship, the woman who, or the, the queen of the nation 
was the high priest of the religion. And so here comes Jezebel going from her home country where if she would have become queen would have been the high priest. And back then, the person who was in charge of the religious establishment kind of controlled the people because the people focused their whole life around the religious structure of the time. And, and, so, and so Jezebel now moves to this country where everything's controlled by the men, where there's a priesthood, where there's this God that they worship. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. I want to be the high priestess. I want to be the high priest. And so she starts to methodically move Israel away from worshiping God. She gets rid of all the prophets, the prophets of God. She literally chases them down and kills them. Okay, and she establishes, she builds up her own team of prophets. Well, one of the prophets that she was trying to get but never got was a guy named Elijah. And uh, Elijah was not really happy with what she was doing. And so one day, Elijah shows up at the palace and says, hey, Miss uh, Jezebel, I challenge you and your prophets to a fight. And uh, so she's like, all right, we can take you. And so they go up to this mountain, Mount Carmel, and they, they do this whole thing. Well, what ends up happening is all of her prophets end up getting killed. 900 people just killed, okay? And so she is ticked, man. She is heated because all of her prophets are dead. The people of Israel think she's, she's causing them some trouble. And so she makes Elijah public enemy number one and spends the rest of her life trying to chase him down and kill him because of what he did to their prophets. Well, she never catches Elijah. And uh, she eventually ends up, uh, one, of, one of her husband's generals in the army rebelled against her husband and uh, formed an army. They, they attacked, they conquered, they killed Jezebel, threw her from a, uh, a tower, and uh, her body hit the ground, and it says the dogs, the dogs ate her dead body on the ground. Okay, So that's how her life ended up. But she was the one who led Israel away from God, who led Israel into this Baal worship. And so, and that, if you want to look at that story later, it's found in 1 Kings uh, chapter 15 through 2 Kings chapter 9, all of the events and story uh, of her life. And so, and so that's Jezebel. And, and God also called, or Jesus also calls this person a prophet there. So he calls a Jezebel and a prophet. And so what's a prophet? Okay, and a uh, prophet was somebody who speaks for God. This can either be a foretelling of the future or something like a message from the Word of God, like what is happening right now. You know, your delivery of a message on a Sunday morning is kind of like being a prophet. And a, and a true prophet has authority because they are speaking the Word of God, whether it's given to them from a voice from God speaking directly through them or it's them taking the Word of God and speaking it. Well, a false prophet is somebody who either takes the Word of God and twists it and turns it to fit their own purposes and plans, or it's somebody who just speaks on their own behalf and declares that they are a prophet, okay? And so Jezebel is being called here. This woman is being called a false prophet. God, Jesus was saying, look, this woman is not teaching stuff that comes from me. It doesn't come from my word. It doesn't come from my voice. I'm not speaking it. And so the question becomes then, what was she teaching? What was she telling the church? And we don't really know what she was telling the church because the Bible doesn't tell us. However, we can make an assumption, which is probably a pretty strong assumption. And the assumption is this, is that she was telling the people that it was okay for them to get back involved with these trade guilds in order to make a living. You know, she was probably saying, look, it's all right. It's all good. If you, if you want to worship 
these gods because, you know, all of us need to eat, right? And God doesn't want you to starve. And so you might as well just go out and get involved in the trade guild and, and do what they're telling you to do just so that you can make a living. You know, you, it's okay. You can worship the Roman gods because you know in your heart you really you love the real and true God. It's, it's okay if you participate in the, and, and a lot of the Roman gods had this, was sex was part of the worship experience. And it's so, oh, it's okay if you do that. It's okay if you get involved in that because, you know what, there's grace to cover over all of your sin. You don't have to worry about, you know, God getting angry, God getting ticked off. He understands. He doesn't expect you to starve. And God told me it's all right. And that's what the assumption is that she was teaching. And the people, because she was the prophet, blindly followed along with her. And so... Here we go. We've got this lady called Jezebel because just like the real Jezebel, she replaced what God had told the people with what she thought was right and she rallied the church around to her cause. And all indications are that she was either the pastor of the church or married to the pastor and she used her place of authority to teach those who follow Jesus that something that God has said not to do is suddenly good. And can I tell you that this practice is still going on today in our churches. We've got churches, and, and I hate to say this, and I'm, not, I'm just talking churches in general, but we've got churches out there that are teaching all sorts of things that, that God has not said in His Word, that God has not said are something that are to be a part of His Word, or uh, His people, His, His kingdom, His life. Um, um, one of the, there's a lot of churches out there that will tell you, you know what? God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be, he wants you to have a nice car. He wants you to have nice clothes. He wants you to have a nice house. He wants you to have all of this great stuff. God's never said that. Jesus never said, hey, my goal is for everybody who follows me to have the best of the best. But we've got churches who teach and preach that that's what God's plan is for your life. And, and you know what? If you don't have those things, if you don't have the best of the best, something is wrong with your walk with Him. You must have sin in your life. You must not be doing things the right way. You must not be following God the right way. We've got other churches that, just like uh, was going on in these last two churches, suddenly sex is something that they can be flexible with. That You know, as long as you're with somebody you love, as long as it's all about love, you can, you can have sex with whoever or whatever you want to have. And they teach that, and they believe that. We've got churches that say that if you are sick, there's something wrong with your spirituality, because if you and Jesus are on good terms, you will be healthy. Those are beliefs and practices that were not spoken by God. And the men and the women that speak that are false prophets because they are declaring something that's the, as, as the Word of God that's not the Word of God. And see, that becomes idolatry because when we replace the Word of God with something else, suddenly we start to worship that's something else that we replace the Word of God with. You know, the churches that tell us to have a nice car and a big bank account and a big house, suddenly those things are the center of their worship. 
You know, the, the church that tells us well, you can have sex whatever way you want as long as it's love, suddenly sex becomes the center of their worship. And I'm not saying that they get into a service and that's what they worship, but it's something that they place undue worth on, undue importance on. And this is exactly what was going on in the church in Thyatira. Their beliefs had gone away from the Word of God and they had become beliefs based on the lifestyle that they wanted. Okay, they wanted to get involved in the trade guilds again so they could make a better living. They were also then by default participating in worship services that came along with being members of the trade guild. I mean, you couldn't, you had to do the services in order to be a part of the guild. And I know many of you are thinking today, but that, that doesn't connect with where we are right now. None of this is going on today. We don't have this issue today. But we do have idols that take the place of Jesus in our life, but it's just a little bit subtler than it was back then. And so let's talk about worship for a minute and what worship is. Worship comes from the old English word worth-ship, okay? It means to ascribe worth to something. And so, when we pay special attention to, when we talk about something, it's giving it worship, okay? And so, if you all have your favorite football team and you talk about your football team and you wear their jerseys, that is giving worth to them. That's worshiping, okay? When we talk about, you know... Um, our favorite musician, like I was just sitting at home and I just had Rihanna on repeat for four hours, you know? And you're saying stuff like that. That's, that's ascribing worth to Rihanna and her music. Okay, when, when our life and everything centers around our kids and that's all we talk about is our kids, that's worship of our kids. When we talk about how we eat at Chick-fil-A five times a week, we're giving worth to Chick-fil-A and that's worship of Chick-fil-A. Now, what I'm not saying here, I don't want you to go away thinking, oh, I can't talk about, no, that's not what I'm saying, okay? That's not what I'm saying. It's okay to have a favorite football team. It's okay to think your kids are awesome. It's okay to eat a Chick-fil-A five times a week and tell everybody you do it, okay? No problems with that. But the problem becomes when those things are given a first place above Jesus, when anything is given a first place above Jesus, that's when it becomes idolatry. And here's what's intense about idolatry, is it's God's most hated sin. Okay, It's the sin that God hates the most. And, and most people would stop and say, well, are you sure about that? Because when you look at the church, when you talk to the church, the church says all kinds of things, but never talks about idolatry. You know, they'll talk about this sin and that sin and the other sin and all of those being the worst, but I never hear them mention idolatry. You know, I don't know why the church doesn't talk about idolatry. Because instead of having, because talking about other things that are going on means I can point the finger that way. When we have to start talking about idolatry, guess where we have to point the finger? This way. We don't want to point the finger at us, do we? We want the bad stuff to be out there and the good stuff to be here. But unfortunately, idolatry 
is a part of each one of our lives, and it's God's most hated sin. And you can see this uh, in the Ten Commandments, and I'm just going to quickly turn to Deuteronomy 5, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 10, and this is what it says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commands. Those are the first two of the Ten Commandments, and both of them have something to do with worshiping worshiping another God other than God. That's the first two. That means it's a big deal. That means this is important to God. It means something we have to sit up and take notice of. This means that we have to see this as something important in our life as well. And, and as I said, because we are not worshiping at poles and stuff, we think that we got this one, but that's not the case. It's way more subtle than that. So you're saying, what do I mean? Well, I want to tell you the story uh, of a church uh, in a place. Uh, this happens to be in China. But an American pastor headed to China. And the church in China is all underground. This pastor heads to a church in China and he was going to be there for two weeks and he was going to be teaching the Bible. And uh, he arrives there on his first day and he was going to do a teaching for a group of pastors that were gathered together. And so being a typical American pastor, he prepared about an hour Bible teaching and the pastors all came into the room and they sat down and he went through his hour's worth of notes and uh, he was done. And the people were like, wait, wait a minute, why are you done? We got questions. And so they literally sat there and asked him questions for the next eight hours. Okay? After that, they said to him, we need you to teach us the whole Old Testament. He's like, um, I'm only going to be here two weeks. And they said, that's okay. We'll start at eight in the morning and we'll go to eight at night. Okay, but he wasn't done at eight o'clock at night. See, then at eight o'clock at night, they asked him to preach at the underground church. So he shows up at the underground church. He walks in the door waiting for worship to begin. But there was no guitar on the stage. There was no drums on the stage. There wasn't an incredible Joe sitting there playing the keyboard on the stage. There was no lights. There was no screen. There was no video. There was no sound booth. There was no cameras. There was none of that stuff. And he was saying to himself, how am I going to do this? I mean, how, when are we going to worship? And guess what they did? They called him on stage and said, okay, it's time to start the service, start preaching. And they wanted him to preach for three hours. He was in a room with no AC, with no heat, with no padded chairs. They had nothing of these conveniences that we had. They didn't even have a microphone. And I just want you to picture, what if I did that here at FAM? What if on Sundays, I just, we just removed the worship team from the stage, we painted the walls back to white, we got rid of the lights, we got rid of the drums, we got rid of the sound. Wait, wait, I need a microphone. I like microphones, so we'll keep the microphone. But we just got rid of everything else, and I just preached for three hours every Sunday. What would happen to this church Pretty soon it would be me preaching to my family, right? Because we wouldn't have three hours to give 
to hearing God's word. We would come in and we'd say, man, this dude is just going to get up there and talk for three hours? Man, I've got better things to do with my time than sit and listen to that. Okay? I would empty the church if I went to that model here. But that's because, you know why? We live in a world that's all about me. I mean, think about this. When we're looking for a church, what do we look for? We look for a church that I like, that I like the style of music, that I like the way the guy communicates, that, that does things the way that I like them. I, 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 I. Or how about in our world, when we, when we look for a job, many of us, when we're, when we're thinking about jobs and careers, what do we say? Well, what do I want to do? What do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? How do I want to do things? When we're trying to buy a house, when we're trying to get a car, when we're trying to basically anything in life, the question goes to I, doesn't it? What do I want? What do I like? What's best for me? What do I want to do with my free time? See, we've become me-focused. We're self-sufficient. We don't need anyone. We've got incredible self-esteem. I'm a good person. And are self-confident. I can do whatever I want and no one can tell me different. And because we're in church on a semi-regular basis and obey parts of the Bible, we think that everything is okay. But it's not okay. We're not okay. I'm not okay. Why? Because when we set up a system in our life like that, guess who becomes our God? Yeah, we become our own gods at that point, don't we? Jesus is our God, but yet we have become our own idols. See, we're in the same state as the church was in in Thyatira 2,000 years ago. And what is more challenging for us is that we are not only our own gods, but we're also our own false prophets. We speak the word, and we, because the word is spoken from us and we see ourselves as good, we think that that's God's plan for us. Sometimes it could be. But the church that was involved in this here, Jesus was tough on them. He told Pergamum that if he was going to come, that he was going to come against them and fight them with the sword of his mouth. Okay? And then Thyatira, he told them they were going to suffer intensely and some people were going to die. It's because God doesn't play around with idolatry. Okay? God doesn't play around with us putting a false prophet, with us putting a false god on the throne where he belongs. He just doesn't play with it. I know some of you are thinking, man, that God is so mean and cruel. Well, let me ask you this question. Those of you that are married, even if you're not married, you can answer this question. Okay, if you've got, you've got somebody, let's say you're married and and uh, they've got, uh, the, the husband or the wife has, has 15 side guys or 15 side girls. Would you be okay with that? Would you say, oh, that's cool. But here's what we expect from Jesus. We expect Jesus to be okay with our 15 side idols and not give him what he deserves first place in our lives and hearts. And unfortunately, there's real consequences for cheating on God. And when we have a church where I'm doing what's best for me 
what I want, what I like, and you're doing what's best for you and what you want and you like. We have a church. Everyone's their own prophet. Everyone's their own idol. We're not following Jesus. That's a church that's full of idolatry. That's a church that's putting itself in the same position that Thyatira and Pergamum were in. And it doesn't matter the great things that the people in the church are doing. If the people do not stop and repent of their idolatry and turn to Jesus, the church is not going to last. I mean, Jesus went as far as to call this church uh, um, that's a church that holds on to the deep secrets of Satan. Why do you say that? Well, because in the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what he told Eve. He was like, Eve, you want this fruit. You should eat this fruit. God doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's exactly what Eve did. This is the temptation that Satan has used from the beginning, and he's used it effectively. So instead of being a church that looks at themselves, serves themselves, and worship themselves, how about we become a church that asks Jesus what he wants from us in our lives? How about we become a church that on an individual level, when we're looking at decisions, when we're facing challenges and problems and struggles, instead of going, what should I do in this situation? We turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, what would you have me to do? How about we be people when something is going on at the church? Instead of saying, I don't want to do that, we say, God, is this something you want me to be a part of or not? And some of you are thinking, oh, you're just trying to make us feel guilty. No, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty because there will be times that God will say, you know what, I don't want you involved in that. And that's okay. But we need to hear the voice of God and do what it's saying. And that's why Jesus revealed himself as the passionate one at the beginning of this letter. He wants us to live with the passion that he has and if we ask him, he'll come and develop that passion in us, that fire in his eyes, that passion just flowing through him. He'll give it to us for him. John the Baptist, he spoke some powerful words in John 3.30. He said, Jesus must increase in his life and I must decrease. And in closing this morning, that's what needs to be the prayer of each and every single one of us here at FAM Church so that we can avoid this, this, this idolatry so that we can avoid this setting ourselves up as an idol and a false prophet and going in a direction that's wrong and being blindly deluded by it because we've set ourselves up as God and false prophet in this situation. That's the prayer we need to pray. Jesus, increase. Jesus, make me passionate so that I can decrease. 